Well, why don't we begin? Uh, I hope you all have your coffee in your bakery, and thank you for coming out on this not entirely ideal spring morning for our panel on morality in American democracy. Uh, this panel is sponsored by the Center for the Study of Democratic Politics, uh, which is a research unit in the Woodrow Wilson School whose aim is to support empirical research on democratic processes and institutions with a particular emphasis on the relationship between how democracy actually works and normative ideals about democracy, democratic theory. Uh, so it's especially fitting, I think, that um, some of the work that's going on in the center and connected with the center be represented in the context of this broader framework of thinking about the role of morality in public affairs and international affairs. My name is Larry Bartels. I'm the director of the Center for the Study of Democratic Politics and a professor in the Wilson School in the Politics Department here at Princeton. And I'm delighted to be able to present this uh, highly distinguished panel of uh, scholars and experts uh, representing, incidentally, a variety of constituencies within the Center for the Study of Democratic Politics. One of the things the center does is to bring scholars at various stages of their career to Princeton for a year at a time to be in residence and exchange ideas with our faculty and students here. And one of the people who's visiting here this year uh, recently received her PhD from the University of Washington and will be starting next year in an academic position at Southern Methodist University is Valerie Hunt. Uh, Valerie is an expert in the policy-making process and is focused on immigration policy. And uh, this year, in her year at Princeton, has also become interested in uh, the politics of biomedical research, new technology, genomics, and stuff like that, and organized a terrific conference that we held here uh, last month on the politics of biomedical research. But today, she'll be talking about immigration as well. And we're very fortunate to have David Leagy, who's an emeritus professor of government at Notre Dame University, one of the leading authorities on the role of religion in cultural issues in American politics and the development of the American party system and voting behavior, and the author of a book that was recently published by Princeton University Press called The Politics of Cultural Differences, and he'll be talking about some of that work and his perspective on the American political process and the role of morality in the political process today. And then finally, we have one of our own faculty members, Karen Stenner, who's in the politics department here and is working on a monumental book about authoritarianism and the way people use uh, moral issues in their own reasoning about politics, and she'll be talking about some of that work today. So I'm delighted to have them here. I'm delighted to have you here. And without further ado, I'll turn things over to Valerie Hunt. I don't need that just yet at all. I don't need that at all. No, yes. Good morning, everyone. And just wanted to check to see if uh, our mic is on, although I've been told that my sinuses are so large that you all back there can probably hear me without a mic. I'm very delighted to be talking about this topic uh, because um, in most instances I have um, the um, pleasure of, of studying and, and examining the relationship between 
issues in institutions and how those those two dynamics interact with each other. But one uh, particular issue and idea that I've been very interested in for the long time is the role of the morality perspective of moral issues and how they influence different types of policy dynamics. So when Larry came to me, I told him I have a catchy title and an idea that's been uh, in my head for a while, and, I, and I want, I'm glad to have this opportunity to, to play with the notion of is there a place for human rights in U.S. immigration policy in the post-9-11 era? Now, to pose the question, is there a place for human rights in immigration policy decision-making, is a bit specious. It has the ring of exploring whether the conceptions of rights is an orphan moral perspective looking for legitimacy within the policy process. And indeed, several more readily identifiable forces do drive migration flows and policy. Economic demand pool of labor, hungry businesses in places such as California, the Southwest, New Jersey, and labor supply push forces in jobs poor countries like Mexico drive migration flows into the United States, as well as shape the nature and the degree of openness of our migration policy. For example, business demand for reliable as well as cheap sources of labor has resulted in the United States government's temporary guest worker program for Mexicans from 1940 to 1960s, and the more recent H-1B visa programs targeting Indian high-tech labor. Now, while partisan demands on immigration policy are also significant, their influences are less clear-cut in that several of the most dramatic reforms since 1965 have had bipartisan support. Now, on the face of it, moral dimensions of evaluation seem to possess little room in the overall spectrum of evaluative dimensions, meaning economic forces, political forces, um, partisan forces, that influence migration policy process. However, when we take a closer look, we can see how moral and ethical dimensions have been present in the migration policy process for quite some time. Indeed, the intersection of morality dimensions and migration has taken some less than laudable turns in our history. For example, the notion of moral turpitude is a very long-standing um, moral principle at work within U.S. immigration policy since the late 19th century. The principle briefly defined is the notion that immigrants or would-be immigrants, potential immigrants, should be chosen or excluded on the basis of moral character. Any flaws in one's moral character are grounds for exclusion. And the list includes such things as um, illiteracy, if you were single and female, um, feeble-mindedness. There was a, a list that uh, had um, a negative bias in the way that it also looked at descriptive notions as well. Now, on, in 1996, Congress crafted legislation that redefined moral turpitude uh, to be on the basis of, to be the basis of deportation for legal immigrants for minor crimes committed in the past. Under the new definition, legal residents who have been in this country for many years can and have been deported on minor infractions such as driving under intoxication and possession of marijuana. Now, another example of the nexus of morality in immigration is the notion of deservedness by virtue of ascriptive characteristics. Often moral character virtues or flaws are attributed to different racial, ethnic, and religious groups. 
This moral characterization of deservedness by national origin, origin, gender, or race spilled over into the 20th century so that uh, the, the most important piece of legislation in terms of defining migration policy in the 20th century, the 1921 or National Origins Quota, designated a system where migration from Northern Europe and England was given priority, migration from Southern and Eastern European countries was severely curtailed, and migration from China and Asian countries was, was, bound, was barred outright. However, I would like to pay attention to how moral dimensions or characterization of rights for non-citizens have informed and even impelled <clears throat> our policy decisions in U.S. immigration in the wake of the September 11th attacks. The bombing of the World Trade Center provoked massive psychological and moral outrage in the domestic and international public arenas. The event riveted the public's attentiveness to many conflicting, thorny issues, primarily the relative porousness of our national boundaries to terrorist attacks and the sobering fact that terror is no longer part of the dangerous world out there. Hmm. I'm on my way to Texas, and I felt like I just said terror. Did I? <laughs> okay. Well. A significant development is that the September 11th attacks is called into question public and governmental commitment to particular democratic values um, regarding liberty of persons regardless of their citizenship status. 9-11 challenges our moral commitment and our, to our cultural and civic values as a nation built upon and enlivened by the presence of immigrants. The nation has wrestled with the thorny question of what to do with strangers in our midst on several occasions. During the late 19, 1790s with the Alien Sedition Acts when we feared the presence of French sympathizers and the first Red, Red Scare which resulted in the Palmer Raids in the 1920s where both citizens and denizens were deported on the basis of their political affiliation and exercising free speech. So clearly these were periods where security was the relevant dimension of evaluation by making policy decisions which took precedence over any other kinds of considerations. The question, is there a place for human rights, or rather a rights-oriented moral perspective for making decisions in the U.S. immigration policy, really speaks to a whole host of questions. While the following is not a, to serve as a comprehensive list, it does give us some sense of recurring moral and ethical themes within political discourse regarding immigration policy. The first one being, should the U.S. abandon its moral commitment to taking in refugees in the wake of the September 11th attacks? What are the moral touchstones that U.S. decision makers used prior to 9-11, and are they appropriate given our redefined understanding of national security? Is it more important to privilege other perspectives, such as security and economic considerations, and to de-emphasize moral and ethical dimensions of evaluation? Specifically, how does the public define and distinguish the rights of citizens from the rights of its non-citizens? Should specific circumstances matter more, or are there underlying universal principles that guide the American public's understanding of rights, such as rights of due process and equal protection, irrespective of context of peacetime or wartime. You all, I'm going to take a, a moment and give this watch to um, my moderator um, so that he can cut me off. I feel that I can't cut myself off, but I'll let him cut me off. In the past, the United States government has been called to task regarding what seem to be differential applications of a moral guiding principle of extending entry to potential refugees. 
The most f familiar illustrative case is that of the difference in U.S. policy toward Haitian refugees and Cuban refugees, a differential policy initiated and perpetuated by presidential administrations of both parties since the 1960s. The moral principle at work in U.S. refugee policy is that there is the human rights notion of opening U.S. borders or doors to those fleeing persecution. The perspective is that of protecting individuals from the governments of these individuals when, these, uh, the, when the governments of these individuals fail to protect them from persecution, even become the source of persecution. Now, in the case of Cuba, the United States policy perspective is to allow as many Cuban refugees that can make it to U.S. shores to be granted asylum and refugee status. This is the so-called wet foot, dry foot policy. Now, in the case of Haitian, refugee, uh, Haitian migrants, the U.S. policy has been to define Haitian immigrants' claims of fleeing government persecution as unfounded and to define Haitians as economic refugees. In a May 28, 1992 news story in the Washington, Port, in Washington Post, President George Herbert Walker Bush defends his policy. We still open our arms to the politically oppressed, but we cannot and I will not open the doors to economic refugees from all over the world. Now, U.S. foreign policy interests were also at, interest, at work in shaping U.S. responses to Haitian and Cuban refugee claims. The real politique perspective at work here is one of an opportunity to embarrass the Cuban re communist regime as well as to apply international pressure on that regime. In regards to Haiti, the United States was very reluctant to upset its relationship with the Haitian government under Duvalier and later Jean-Bertrand Aristide by officially recognizing Haitian immigrant claims of, of fleeing persecution. Now, how does the public make distinctions between these two particular circumstances, these two particular contexts, uh, characterization of immigrants? and their reason for uh, uh, needing a moral consideration of, uh, of entry into this country. How does the public come to understand and accept the characterization of immig immigrants from Cuba as good re refugees and immigrants from Haiti as bad re refugees or not refugees at all? A second important arch overarching question is how does the American public make distinctions between circumstances involving the treatment of immigrants once they do reach U.S. shores. Now, to a large degree, how an issue is framed or understood influences how a public makes these distinctions between a good immigrant and a bad immigrant, or the, the necessity of uh, taking a moral perspective of, of opening doors or closing doors. Different frames highlight particular elements within an issue. If an issue becomes comes to be understood as only about national security, then the public may become inattentive to other considerations such as the rights of personhood. Also, if an issue is characterized as about efforts to curb terrorism, then public attitudes may seem to favor policy op options that can afford to ignore perspectives such as the moral perspective. The upshot is that in terms of public opinion and public de deliberation, context matters and characterization matters. How am I on time? Ten minutes. Ten minutes. Okay. The prevailing understanding of human rights, well, let me ask this one question. How are the issues of civil rights for non-citizens framed in the public discourse in the post-9-11 era? 
and the prevailing public understanding of human rights is that it is a part of the politics out there, divorced from the political considerations of relations between citizens, non-citizens, and the American state. Human rights tends to be framed as a foreign policy issue. There are seldom any questions asked of the public regarding human rights of immigrants, regardless of the formal status within the U.S. When the American public is polled regarding their attitudes on human rights, the tendency is to ask about rights of citizens in other countries. Civil rights politics, on the other hand, is politics of the local. The frames used to discuss civil rights are often gendered and racially contextualized. Civil liberties, yet another way of thinking about rights of personhood, are defined as freedoms and not as protections from governmental incursions. In light of these three public and public characterizations, both of the, um, the pub, mass public, elite public, and also of um, policy decision makers, the rights of immigrants occupy an ambiguous space in the public policy discourse. They are neither fish nor fowl, and thus highly vulnerable. To explore these questions, I turn to public opinion surveys conducted in the period immediately following September 11th attacks, that being September 13th to December 20th, 2001. This period gives us a window into the reevaluation of how moral dimensions uh, come into play in addressing the relationship between rights, immigrants, and the concern about national security. Specifically, questions arose uh, regarding U.S. moral obligations to extend rights of personhood to those most vulnerable within our national borders. Namely, Immigrants who are from the same religion and ethnic background of, of those who attacked the World Trade Center. This period allows us to discern what frames, namely different ways of wording the same information in a question, influence the public's understanding of what rights are protected and what rights for non-citizens are up for a contestation or, or contestable. I'd like to turn our, our attention to thinking about the differential rights for citizens and non-citizens in the notion of due process and equal protection. Americans have a strong conception of what practices and behavior characterizes equal protection. Does the, but the question is, does the public draw different zones of equal protection for citizens and non-citizens? And if so, what rights are considered appropriate for both um, groups, and which rights does the public consider belonging only to citizens? Now, in this um, figure here, we'll see that these are three separate questions, and within these questions there was a, a frame of uh, should citizens have the same rights as non-citizens, and so that's question number one. And within that, only about 23% of the respondents uh, felt that non-citizens should have fewer, fewer rights, where an overwhelming number felt that there should be no distinction. Now, when the question, and there are two questions that were asked within the same time period, when there was a terrorist question frame, which is given the efforts of the government to curb terrorism, should it be easier to investigate non-citizens than citizens? And so the, um, the percentage of, of respondents who, were more, uh, who, were, who favored this, um, this policy option increased. And we also see that with the second question, that the notion of should there be a different set of rules for non-citizens and citizens, given that we are in the efforts of curbing terrorism, that percentage also increased. 
Now, another big question that features in liberties and rights and human rights debates is how to define privacy, or rather the protective zone around privacy of individuals. Have the other slide. Public surveillance has never been popular among American public. However, the September 11 attacks, um, the public revisited the issue of surveillance in efforts of curbing, um, curbing terrorism. What is interesting is what frames influence the public to define what groups can be drawn in and what groups can be drawn out. So I'm going to show you a comparison here. In, um, the Gallup poll has been asking the same question for about 20 odd years, which is, should the, should the government require national ID cards that are similar to carrying a social security card? And you'll see here this 1977, 1980, 19, could you read that to me, uh, Cassidy, 1983 Joseph? 1983 and 1984. And 1983 and 1984. Of those years, um, the, the percentage of folks who were um, supportive of requiring an ID card under a benign context of thinking of it as being similar to a Social Security card was around 60, 60 odd percent. However, when we started thinking about carrying a national ID card within the context of whether citizens and non-citizens should be carrying this in order to curb um, illegal migration, it becomes a little more problematic. These were questions that were taken in 1990, 1993, and 1994, which is the support of na public support of national ID card in terms of, of curbing illegal migration. Well, that were, the support dropped considerably. I mean, you'll see here that the favoring this hovered from 42% to 50%. Um, people were less interested in, uh, in withdrawing the civil liberty of their privacy in, when it came to whether they were going to curb the, um, the influx of, of illegal, illegal migrants. Now, when we turn to the context of, yes, can we take, have the other one? When we turn to the context of Curbing terrorism in the post 9-11 era, these are three questions that were taken in September, and between September and December in 2001. Again, the, the support skyrockets. Under strongly accept and uh, strongly favor, uh, it rises to about 80%, 70%, and 60%. So that when we start thinking about how are we parsing our concerns and rights and how are we parsing our concerns and rights for citizens and non-citizens, it becomes quite problematic and the public gets a bit, I don't want to call it confused, but um, are <clears throat> sway back and forth given the context. I have only five minutes. Um, I'm going to move quickly on. This is about public attitudes regarding the tension of citizens. <clears throat> Can we have the uh, public responses to questions regarding the tension of citizens as well as non-citizens were sensitive to question wording and <clears throat> of who would be subject to detention rather than the practice of indefinite detention as a violation of personal freedoms. We have four different questions that we're taking at the same time period. And of these, you'll see that when there is the context of uh, detaining legal immigrants for, from unfriendly countries, the public opposes that, which is about 55%. But when we use the frame of should the government uh, um, be able to detain legal, legal immigrants who are suspected of crimes, then the support for this rises very sharply up to about uh, Let's see, 70 percent. 
actually, I'm, I'm giving you this analysis in the way where I'm talking about the support rather than the, the non-support. Let's talk about the non-support for three and four. And in terms of the context of, di of uh, disapproving, detaining Middle Eastern um, men or mi Middle Eastern people, then the uh, approval skyrockets and the disapproval goes down. And also for question four, I'm, I'm feeling the, the, the pressure of time here, so let me move on and I'll take, and I can continue this conversation within um, our question and answer session. Much ink has been spilled discussing the role and impact of U.S. civil rights movement on the dramatic reforms in U.S. immigration policy in the 60s. And the U.S. has one of the most inclusive and liberal immigration and naturalization policies. Nonetheless, our heritage and future as a nation of immigrants is fraught with tensions that result from our ongoing struggle of how to treat strangers in our midst. While rights do matter, for example, in terms of widening the welfare state and reconfiguring our notions of privacy, the impact of rights on the public's understanding of civil liberties, rights, uh, civil rights and human rights is less understood. I started out wanting to reflect about the role of human rights in U.S. immigration policy and soon realized that one cannot discuss human rights separate from other conceptions of rights, namely civil rights and civil liberties. To do so misses the larger picture of how rights discourse serves both to include and exclude on moral, on moral grounds. Rights discourse set up practices that complicate our understanding of what it means to be a good citizen, what it means to be a good American, and what it means to be part of a historical legacy of a nation of immigrants. And I thank you for prevailing upon your time. I know I went over though. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. And thank you for the opportunity to join this conference as well as the Presidential Assessment Conference and to be in Princeton even though it's a London day in Princeton. My remarks, as Larry sort of forecast, are framed in a theory of cultural politics articulated in this new Princeton University Press book called The Politics of Cultural Differences. The book deals with two anomalies of the last four decades. First, Republicans pretty consistently win presidential elections despite Democratic majorities and or pluralities in party identifiers. And secondly, turnout is declining at a time when it should be increasing. All the predictors of turnout are up, but it's declining. To understand these counterintuitive puzzles, we formulated an explicit cultural theory and a model of campaign dynamics, and then estimated the effects of cultural campaign themes on turnout, defection, and party loyalty. Culture, as Geertz argues, refers not to the artifacts and practices of elites, but is a template that makes sense out of the world, telling us who we are, how we ought to behave toward others and toward forces outside human control, and establishing boundaries on who and what are not of us. Culture offers both intelligibility and a semblance of order. However, culture is not monolithic. There's competition among subcultural values. And Swidler characterizes culture as competing toolkits for rationalizing the world and our self-interests. Nation states 
rely on cultures to justify asymmetrical power relationships among the rulers and the ruled, to render their citizens orderly, to reduce national uncertainty, and to protect against other nations or groups who pose external or internal threat, particularly in times of uncertainty or threat. First, nations will turn to religion to reduce uncertainty, and secondly, nations will scapegoat to mobilize against the threat. Cultural politics is symbolic discourse through ritualistic behavior campaigns that resolves conflict by reiterating identity norms and boundaries. An old political axiom says that if you can't beat them at the game, change the issue labeling. For example, parochial school aid becomes vouchers for school choice. ERA and pay equity become desexagration. Welfare or education becomes leaving no child behind. Old folks have their dignity restored as senior citizens and golden agers. Gun toters and vigilantes become patriots. Abortion becomes a woman's choice, and opposition to abortion becomes pro-life. All are packaged through more powerful cultural symbols that have political advantages during candidate or policy campaigns. Often cultural politics is more powerful than economic issues. The complexity of economic questions is simplified through cultural scapegoating. Greedy polluters, greedy pharmaceuticals, greedy Wall Street yuppies, tax cheats, or on the other side, class warfare, or tax and spend liberals. To politicize an issue, elites often need to translate it into the appropriate level of meaning. Political elites interrogate the American experience through explicit theories or overarching worldviews about national purpose, the founding, or even recent historical matters such as the value conflicts of the 60s or the appropriate metaphor for responding to terrorism. Is it containment through diplomacy or preemptive strike through military action? Their scripts involve historical interpretations and as such are subject to challenge. Religious elites also engage in this enterprise and they do it through different source documents such as just war principles or pacifism or what have you. In the discourse of both types of elites, premium is placed on the logical consistency of the argument and the credibility and appropriateness of evidence. For rank-and-file citizens, however, symbols that resonate with where or how we live, visual images that allow us to fill in the rest of the story, and plausibility tests carry the day. Tricky Dick Nixon, Slick Willie Clinton, out of touch George Bush, the 41st, or Snoopy in the tank, Michael Dukakis, carry all we need to know. 
The TV image etches in our minds the dark beard and shifty eyes. Or the lecturing finger accompanying, I did not have sex with that woman. Or that depends on what is, is. Or amazement that barcodes were used at a checkout counter at a convenience store a decade or more after their introduction. Or the awkwardness and amusement of a candidate trying to look tough on national defense. Remember the bright orange robes and the shaven heads of those foreign Buddhist monks giving money to Al Gore? All were the cultural discourse of the rank and file that had powerful political consequences. Great political communicators develop masterful ways of speaking American, that is, in ordinary parlance. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Ich bin ein Berliner. Evil empire. There you go again. Mr. Gorbachev, tear this wall down. I feel your pain. Fuzzy math. Kick butt. Don't mess with Texas. I wouldn't put it past him. You are either with us or against us. I wouldn't put it past him. Just recently, polls say that 55% of Americans say we fought this war in Iraq because Saddam was responsible for 9-11. I wouldn't put it past him. Their speech writers and handlers also sanctify their addresses with powerful, cultural, often religious symbols of American purpose, such as shining city on a hill, a thousand points of light, freedom, democracy, free enterprise, Christianity, or prodigal generation. Policy behaviors at crucial times match public expectations. The public was stunned to see the Twin Towers fall. Only a chicken shit president would take out al-Qaeda operatives through covert means. What communicates is the pyrotechnics. Bomb the hell out of the bastards, especially during our dinner hour. Catching, killing, or trying them eventually becomes difficult. Hopefully, the first impression will outweigh the first stated objective. Life is simple, more secure, through powerful symbols of action. All of this is prologue to the manner in which presidential campaigns use cultural symbols to control the size and composition of the electorate. In recent years, political handlers, pollsters, and media specialists have become remarkably candid about their research to isolate vulnerable sectors of the opposition party's coalition. They then position their own candidate to create disillusionment that leads to turnout failures in the vulnerable group, or create anxiety that leads to crossover voting among the vulnerable group, or stimulates a sense of moral superiority and a taste of impending victory that mobilizes one's own partisan base. Our research has isolated four types of cultural appeals used by the parties in the latter half of the 20th century to affect the size and composition of the electorate. First, patriotism 
in the face of threat. And that's what we're returning to these days in American politics. The anchor of the Cold War is gone, but we have a new anchor now in American politics for patriotism. Race, through a sense of relative deprivation, gender and religion, through notions of moral order in primary group roles. Our study relies heavily on group theory, cognitive mising, and social attributions theory. Now, unlike other highly developed Western democracies where religious beliefs and practices are almost historical artifacts, a recent Pew survey has underscored that in the U.S. they remain not only alive, but perhaps even growing among the young. It should come as no surprise, then, that American politicians take pains to display their righteousness and take recourse to religious language to signify national and personal values. Further, they would find religious bodies and groupings convenient social and psychological locations for the practice of cultural politics. Paradoxically, as Withnell has shown, at the point where parochial denominational grievances have given way to a new ecumenism, the resulting cross-denominational groups have become increasingly intolerant of each other. Although we find later culture wars theory flawed both logically and empirically, the autonomy of the political will lead the ambitious to plumb religious groups and religious discourse for electoral advantage. Skepticism aside, however, many politicians and citizens embrace deep values about the scope and purposes of the political community, about who is honorable and dishonorable, about who should be included and excluded, and they look to governmental action for sanctions of their values, particularly those converted from a different way of life are likely to interpret both daily life and politics through categories of good and evil. Candidate Bush was not just being autobiographical or whistling Dixie when he spoke of a prodigal generation. He was giving the nation deep insights in the campaign into his personal character and the values of those who would come to support him. Now, I have available over here by the entrance, and Joe, you may want to uh, pass those out. Uh, I don't have enough copies for everyone. But I have some figures and tables drawn from the study. I'm not going to go into the measurement principles greatly, but only enough to tell you uh, what sorts of things are useful and, uh, uh, in this uh, study. Uh, we've used historical narratives from the perspective of middle America. We've done content analysis of campaign themes, their targets, the duration uh, with which they were run. We've developed a new measure of partisan vote yield, which we call a politician's calculus of the vote, because it allows us to say not only how many people have a party identification in a target group, but also whether they vote and whether they vote loyalty, loyally or defect with the party. You can see in figure 8-1 with the universe of white non-Latino Catholic Democrats, you'll see three ribbons for the Democrats and then down below three ribbons for the Republicans, and then you'll see a net measure in the middle. 
The gray ribbons always depict people who are defectors within the group and the proportion in any given election who have defected. The white ribbons are the no-shows, people who failed to turn out, and that's often an important category. And the pure black ones refer to the loyal party identifiers. So, for example, you can see that with the white non-Latino Catholics in this figure, 1972 was a terrible year for Democrats. There was enormous defection and failures of turnouts among Catholics uh, to the point where Nixon was able to carry Catholics virtually uh, in that election. Uh, in the 90s, you find that among Republicans, there's weaker turnout and a lot of defection among Catholic Republicans, and that's one of the reasons uh, William Jefferson Clinton uh, entered the White House, because of defections among Catholic Republicans. We also used factor analyses to isolate the central issues and the groups, the feeling thermometers of groups in the National Election Studies data, and then put them together into second-order factors. Uh, that is a, a political device because what candidates seek to do is bundle together different ideas into efficient symbols. So the symbol comes to mean a whole lot. Uh, for example, when you use the term tax and spend liberal, that not only has some notion of some philosophical notion of the role of government, but it has a sense of relative deprivation that my taxes are going to unworthy people, moral turpitude in uh, your term, Valerie, are going to unworthy people. It also has notions of race. It has notions of unworthy lifestyles. It has notions of inappropriate gender and sex roles and, the, and of people who don't respect traditional religious values, all bundled up in that one term, tax and spend liberal. So that's a powerful and efficient symbol, and second-order factor analysis allows us to do that kind of thing. Now, that's used as an ind independent or predictor variable for the dependent variable, which is these perturbations in party loyalty, defection, and turnout. And we used multinomial regression analysis to estimate that in Table 8.1, for those of you who have them. You can see very clearly that for white Roman Catholics, white non-Latino Roman Catholics, 68, 72, 76, 80, 84, 88, and 92 were all race-related elections. Republicans made headway among Catholics, not on cultural restorationism or family values, but on race, clear and simple, race-related cultural values. 64, patriotism was important, and family values didn't become important among Catholics until 96. Now, we have some summaries, some quick summaries, because my time is rapidly running down. Um, the patriotism and xenophobia, uh, Cold War campaign style developed by Nixon and Reagan, was also used in, by Bush in uh, Bush 43 in the 2002 election, and we're going to see it in spades in 2004. We'll know who the non-patriots are in 2004. Uh, simply the selection of the convention site and the timing of the convention site are going to remind us about patriotism and national security. Race and partisan, uh, race and partisan realignment went together all during this time, and they were the key factors from 68 to 92 and once again, curiously enough, in 2000, 
race was a factor, even though there wasn't much mention of it. It was subliminal throughout that election. Gender and religion became the second basis for partisan alignment. It gathered steam in the 90s. Family values, cultural restoration became very important. And then the search for efficient symbols was what was behind a lot of the crystallization of the electorate. There was heavy crystallization of party images in 72 and in 2000, so we had two anchor groups up against each other. The outcome in 2000, of course, showed the results of that. Non-Latino Southern whites, as you can see in figures 8.3 and table 8.2, were responsive. There was a gradual movement uh, over to the Republican Party. They were responsive to all of these cultural issues, and particularly from 88 on to the religious and gender-related uh, family values appeals. For African Americans, the critical election was 64. That's the whole story, a realignment. And beyond that, it becomes a question of turnout, what will mobilize a faithful base of the party. For mainline and evangelical Protestants, going uh, again to our religious groupings, evangelical Protestants have become the new core of the Republican Party. And it's largely on cultural issues, first race and then gender. But patriotism is not far behind. Uh, they're all part of the same baggage. Mainline Protestants, on the other hand, have become disloyal members of the Republican Party to the point where in 2000, uh, as well as 96, mainline Protestants were on, lined up on the Democratic side in this mean partisan uh, vote yield measure an important factor, and it also shows when you put the two together in the party, it also helps us to understand where the major sources of support and who you're appealing to when you mobilize the base in the Democratic Party, excuse me, in the Republican Party. Now, George Bush tried a number of devices, not the least of which was compassionate conservatism, to try to keep mainline Protestants and Catholics in the party and uh, had varying effects. Uh, I just threw in uh, the within-gender warfare among uh, Democrat, uh, the, the future of young professional women in the Democratic Party. Just a quick summary. This approach to cultural politics is an approach that we can export uh, to a variety of elections, uh, also congressional elections. But I think it also helps us to understand some of the language of current American foreign policy. Cultural conflict terms, and particularly religious language, have come to dominate American domestic politics in campaigns. Yes, in yesterday's uh, session, John Dulio pointed out that issues in the White House, when he was there, he had a sort of a little tote sheet, a running telly, issues in the White House were quickly translated into valence or cultural conflicts. Immediately, White House staffers would translate it over into cultural categories. This is American politics now. It should come as no surprise, then, that after several decades of the Cold War, race, gender, and religious value conflicts, discourse about American foreign policy should come to, to be, be dominated essentially by religious terms. That's our language of politics now. Thank you. Thanks, David. Our third panelist is Karen Stenner.
What did you tell me? Can I stand over here and be amplified by this? Why don't you try it and see if they can hear you? Can everybody hear me? Yes. Okay. I'm not going to stand behind the lectern because I'm too short and it sort of diminishes my authority. But you know, I feel pretty tall. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> excuse me, I also have a cold. <laughs> Um, believe it or not, this is a large audience for me. It's certainly a larger audience than I'm accustomed to, so I have way too few handouts to go around the room. Um, I have 12. So I'm going to give them to Joe, and he's going to be the arbiter of like who receives them. Um, just sort of asking you if you're sitting together in a group, maybe if you could share one. Um, I have overheads as well, so you won't miss too much if you don't get one. Um, all right, um, I'm going to be talking about uh, moral intolerance and trying to put it in a more general framework, uh, speaking about theories of authoritarianism, people having low-level predispositions to be intolerant of difference in general, including both racial, political, and moral intolerance, and how those things move together and the conditions under which they're activated and expressed. Um, racial, political, and moral tolerance are among the most important requisites for liberal democracy to live in peace with and treat with respect, if not necessarily affection, members of other racial and ethnic groups, um, to allow the free expression of ideas with which we disagree, to allow other people to regulate their own moral behavior, at least insofar as they do us no harm. Um, these are all important elements underwriting a successful liberal democracy. Um, many people have studied attitudes and behavior within each of these domains of racial, political, and moral intolerance, excuse me, <coughs> finding, not surprisingly, that each of them is substantially regulated by ideas, interests, and emotions that are specific to each of those domains. But what has also been discerned across now 60 years of empirical research is that those things go together. People who are inclined to treat with respect and disaffection, members of other racial and ethnic groups, also tend to be the ones who want to suppress the expression of ideas with which they disagree, also seem to be the people who are unusually interested in other people's moral behavior and inclined to favor the use of state authority to regulate other people's conformity with norms and practices, leading many people to suppose the existence of some kind of enduring predisposition to be intolerant of difference, and this has been called authoritarianism. The concept of authoritarianism has had a very checkered history in social science since the first publication of the authoritarian personality um, in 1950. Um, in its original formulation, authoritarianism was understood as a personality syndrome um, originating in rigid and punitive uh, child-rearing and involving the suppression of hostility toward the overbearing parent and its displacement onto easy targets, racial and ethnic outgroups, criminals, deviants, and dissidents, um, thus providing this kind of psychodynamic explanation of why those things ought to be going together. Um, now this original formulation has been subjected to serious theoretical, methodological critiques in the intervening period, most of which are so well known that they don't bear my repeating them here. But from my point of view, when I first started thinking about this, a couple of things stood out. Um, first of all, by whatever measure of authoritarianism you choose to employ, and that in itself is a controversial issue. Uh, one of the serious critiques is that people had a measure of authoritarianism, the original F-scale, which was full of specific references to criminals, deviants, and dissidents. You add up people's responses to those items, form a scale called authoritarianism, and then surprise, surprise, it predicts people's specific attitudes towards criminals, deviants, and dissidents. Um, and so that was the dissatisfaction with the tautology of the scale with the dependent variables was one of the reasons why the concept fell into disfavor. So uh, one of the things I should note is that when I'm talking about authoritarianism and when I'm using it in my analyses, all I'm doing is presenting people with a series of choices that are called child-rearing values, 
where, which provide a sort of an unobtrusive, low-level, fundamental sort of measure of people's predispositions to be intolerant of difference without being confounded with the dependent variables and without specifically referencing political and social structures and processes, simply asking people, um, is it more important that children respect their elders or they think for themselves? Is it more important that children are obedient or that they're curious about how and why things happen? So just presenting people with a series of choices which oppose freedom and autonomy versus sameness and oneness, essentially, and then using that as a low-level measure of their predisposition to intolerance or difference. So the puzzles I started thinking about, the ones that were persisting and, and um, reducing confidence in, in the concept and its ability to explain intolerance of difference, um, by whatever measure of authoritarianism you chose to employ, you can take that measure, apply it to a group of people, score some of them as low authoritarian and some as uh, high authoritarian, and observe their behavior in different situations. In certain situations, their behavior is clearly different. In other situations, they're virtually indistinguishable. Now, for people who are initially skeptical that so-called individual difference measures explain much of what's important about social behavior, the idea that you could have this individual predisposition that doesn't consistently predict behavior across different situations, well, the skeptics could be forgiven their skepticism. The second puzzle that was hanging around in the literature, and what you'll see is this really just is the aggregate version of the one I've just noted, is that this uh, persistent observation in both social science and, and sort of popular commentary that things that we think of as being authoritarian behaviors, racial hate crimes, acts of political violence, gay bashing, abortion clinic bombings, etc., that those kinds of authoritarian behaviors rise and fall in response to changing levels of social and economic threat. So once again, the idea that uh, you know, central personality dimensions like authoritarianism might rise and fall in response to changing environmental conditions, it's certainly not a commonplace idea in current personality theorizing. So what I've uh, been working on for more years than I care to confess at this point is uh, a, a theory that attempts to resolve those empirical puzzles in a very parsimonious way. So what I have is a simple model which I call the authoritarian dynamic, which consists of this low-level measure of authoritarianism, fundamental predisposition to be intolerant of difference. So just asking people in the context of qualities for children, do you use it more important that children are obedient or that they think for themselves. Interacting that predisposition measure with measures of what I call normative threat. So if authoritarianism is, as I've described it, is people with high levels of authoritarianism are people with just some unusual interest in oneness and sameness, just an unusual aversion to freedom and difference. Uh, what makes a community a community, what makes us us, is shared leadership that all respect and shared values. So what should aggravate people with those kinds of predispositions and increase the expression of those in manifest intolerance are conditions what I call normative threat, and that is leadership failure, leaders unworthy of respect, and loss of consensus. So if leadership, shared authority, and shared norms are what make us us, then leadership failures and loss of consensus in, in values across the, across the public should be conditions, either real or perceived, that activate those predispositions to be intolerant of difference and increase their manifest expression in racial, political, and moral intolerance. Um, and so all I've been doing from the beginning to the end is basically looking at that simple dynamic, the interaction of predisposition to authoritarianism with changing conditions of normative threat and showing how that massively increases the expression of authoritarianism in manifest intolerance under those conditions. Now, those conditions I experimentally manipulate 
or I measure them, they're real sort of objective conditions occurring in, uh, in the electorate, um, and or their perceptions of normative threat. So regardless of how I set it up, um, often experimentally manipulating normative threat, if any of you have the handout, you can see in the front of the handout various things I use as stimulus materials um, in the experiments. A uh, very common one is just mocking up a, a fictitious newspaper story, unbeknownst to the subjects fictitious, that says, you know, nobody agrees on anything anymore. Americans have lost the things that held us together. There's no consensus on anything that's important, which many of you will know is a very, very common story in, in the media. That's generally... Uh, very, very easy to find. I remember once I ran an experiment where I wanted to find the opposite kind of story to that, like a normatively reassuring story about consensus and we're all sort of agreeing with one another. And I had my class search for half a semester for an appropriate article, uh, which was normatively reassuring. And we found 10,000 articles talking about how Americans don't agree on anything anymore and everything's falling apart. And zero, exactly zero articles that were in a reassuring vein. And I want to talk about some of the political implications of that if I get a, uh, a little bit of time at the end. So um, essentially, if you're looking in the front of the handout, um, either by means of um, calling people up on the phone and saying, you know, we're going to tell you about an important news story that happened last week. Uh, the story is that Americans don't seem to agree on anything important anymore. There's increasing fragmentation in public opinion. So if measures of their predispositions, you implement some kind of uh, simple manipulation like that. Other people get a reassuring thing. You know, Americans are increasingly agreeing on things that are important to us. Um, leaderships, leaders, leaders have been worthy of the trust and respect that we invested in them. And then you take the dependent variables, racial, political, and moral tolerance. And you can see that people with the same level of authoritarianism will respond entirely differently to the race and tolerance items depending upon whether you've given them the three-sentence version of normative reassurance or the three-sentence uh, normative threat. So low-level predisposition um, implements some simple manipulation, either having them read a fictitious newspaper story about fragmented public opinion or sort of simply saying a few lines over the phone, massive sort of differences in the expression of racial, political, and moral intolerance. Um, hopefully some of you will be able to... Okay. So if this will... This, these are numbered the same as in the handout, uh, so that will do for most people. Um, so just to sort of clarify what I was telling you previously, here along the x-axis is this low-level measure of authoritarian predisposition. So people at this end of the scale have simply responded fairly consistently that it's more important that children are obedient and respect their elders and do what they're told. And people at the other end say it's more important that children are curious and imaginative and think for themselves. All right, people with mixed choices land somewhere in between. This is the experimental manipulation. If you have the handout, this is from the fictitious newspaper article. So there's a story there that talks about the real cultural revolution, uh, sort of increasing fragmentation in American public opinion. There's a story there that talks about how the leaders um, of both parties have generally failed, uh, not being worthy of the trust that the American public put in them. And this is a control condition. All right? And so you can see that here we have people with a certain level of authoritarianism. In the control condition, they're expressing this level of intolerance. If exposed to the belief diversity story, they're expressing this level of intolerance. So this is a scale running from zero to one. So these are very large effects. So authoritarians, so remember the puzzle that I started out talking about, is authoritarians and libertarians are virtually indistinguishable in certain conditions. So if you come upon them when they're not in a situation where normative threats have been activated, people who are extremely libertarian right down this end of the scale and people who are extremely authoritarian are virtually indistinguishable in their manifest expression of intolerance, but they sharply diverge 
and in conditions of normative threat. You can see the same thing. Um, punitiveness, which I think of as being another aspect of moral intolerance. Sorry, I should mention the dependent variable here. Um, I'm just sort of very quickly skipping over. Attitudes towards school, prayer, abortion, homosexuality, gay rights, protecting gays from job discrimination, all kinds of moral regulation. Uh, um, courts don't deal harshly enough with criminals, you know, support for three strikes laws, etc., support for the death penalty. Uh, punitiveness. So again, this is a scale running from zero to one. Again, the low-level measure of authoritarianism here. Basically, you can turn authoritarian's expression of punitiveness, support for the death penalty, stricter sentencing, and so on, from here to here, uh, depending upon whether they're in the control condition, in which case they're virtually indistinguishable from people at the other end of the scale who want children to be imaginative curious and think for themselves, behaving, expressing the same level of punitiveness, regardless of their widely varying predispositions. But in this simple manipulation, in this case, again, just simply reading either the story about how the leaders have been crummy or the story about fragmented public opinion, you can dramatically alter uh, the responses that they give to all kinds of tolerance items. And so just generally summarizing, it doesn't matter what kind of intolerance of difference you put on the y-axis, right? So it can be racial intolerance, moral intolerance, political intolerance, punitiveness. It doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter whether you experimentally manipulate the normative threat, whether you measure the objective conditions of threat, or whether you measure people's perceptions of how the leaders have been crummy and opinions are diverse and nobody agrees on anything anymore. Regardless of how you do it, <coughs> excuse me, and obviously the experimental evidence is the strongest because rules out alternative claims. Regardless of how you do it, you see the same pattern. Authoritarians becoming more intolerant under conditions of normative threat. Libertarians moving towards greater tolerance under the same conditions. And that has important implications as well, which I'd like to talk about. Um, same thing, different experiment. If people have the handout, the next experiment has a list of sort of simple three-line things that were read to people over the phone. Um, in the stable diversity story, stable diversity, sort of one of the things I'm trying to do in my work is distinguish conservatism, which I think of as stability versus change, from authoritarianism, which you think of as sameness and oneness versus difference and freedom. So I wanted to create conditions in this experiment that should be aggravating conservatives but reassuring to authoritarians and vice versa. So this is diversity which should be aggravating to authoritarians, but it's a stable diversity. Um, society's not falling apart, you know, institutions, norms, everything's working well. There's just a lot of difference, but it's a stable diversity, which essentially describes the situation for most modern liberal democracies. And then the other version of that is changing together. Right? There's rapid social change. We're moving forward together at a very fast pace, but we're moving forward together. Right? So this should be very upsetting to conservatives, but reassuring and actually exciting to authoritarians who like sameness, oneness, and togetherness. This should be comforting to conservatives, the stability aspect of it, but very aggravating to authoritarians. So the worst kind of diversity, if you don't like diversity, <clears throat> is an entrenched and stable diversity that everybody's accepting. So you can see again, this is simple dependent variable, the probability of responding yes to a question which asks whether local government should require school prayer. 
So this is a very serious sort of issue in moral regulation. It's just not you would prefer if other people prayed. Um, you know, you'd rather see a policy change in that direction. But you think that local governments should require by law prayer in public schools. And you can move authoritarians from this level of agreement, so sort of a, about a point one to point two probability of agreeing with the statement government should require school prayer, through to point five, point six probability of agreeing with the statement. Um, you can see that they're not really very strongly distinguished from libertarians in those conditions, but sharply distinguished in those conditions. And again, these are, you think of this as an innate predisposition in the electorate, trying to think of the societal level analog of each of these experiments. Think of the innate predisposition unchanging in the electorate. So people have these predispositions, and I don't have time to talk about it, but basically it's rooted in cognition and personality. So there's a personality dimension called openness to experience, and that's the most important determinant of authoritarianism. People with low levels of openness are high in authoritarianism, and also people with cognitive limitations, sort of basically cognitive incapacity, inability to deal with complexity and difference. And those are the most important determinants of authoritarianism, and to a lesser extent, punitive child rearing. Take that enduring fundamental predisposition that's unaltered, and then this is politics, basically, over here. This is um, <clears throat> increasing diversity in society, media talking about Americans don't agree on anything anymore, leadership scandal, Lewinsky, etc. I can show you that um, Bill Clinton's sort of activities in the Lewinsky scandal contributed more to racial, political, and moral intolerance in the US than just about anything in the last 20 years. So loss of confidence in leaders and institutions, right? feelings of belief diversity, fragmentation in public opinion, that's all the stuff of politics. Those are the exogenous factors that are changing from one point to the next, and that's why politics matters. right? So this is political psychology. You have the predisposition of the electorate, and you have the changing political circumstances. Um, and I have to skip over this fairly quickly, but one of the things that's important in each of these experiments is to distinguish what I'm calling normative threat those two things that I um, described to you, loss of confidence in political leaders and institutions and feelings of belief diversity, fragmentation of public opinion, nobody agrees on anything anymore, distinguishing those from other kinds of threat because the idea that threat is implicated somehow in the activation of intolerance is a very long-standing idea. Very murky, but very long-standing idea. And lots of people, sort of the common sense idea is that you know, the most primitive version is sort of a frustration-aggression version, which is any kind of aggravation whatsoever will have people sort of flailing about with the, you know, the aggression born simply of frustration. That's the very primitive version. And, you know, a somewhat more sophisticated version that seems more commonsensical is that economic decline causes increases in intolerance. So that's a very common hypothesis both in popular commentary and social science. Racial conflict causes racial intolerance. So when there's change in resources or competition over resources between different racial groups, that that will cause racial intolerance. So each of these experiments contrasts normative threat, as I've described it, with those more common sense explanations, including fear of dying, alien invasion, <laughs> economic downturn, everything that you can possibly imagine that from any other point of view might be upsetting to anybody, um, and contrast their impact upon intolerance with the impact of normative threat. And no matter how you set it up, manipulated, experienced, you know, sort of objective conditions, subjective perceptions, 
Nothing does this to authoritarianism. Nothing activates this dynamic to the same degree as simple normative threat. Things that from some common sense perspective or for people who don't have strong predispositions to worry about sameness and oneness, you know, leadership failure and diverse public opinion are not exactly, you know, the stuff of nightmares. Um, and so it's, it's actually very, you know, theoretically discriminatory. That simple stories, sort of three-line stories you can tell over the phone will activate and sort of increase the manifestation of, of racial, political, and moral intolerance. Um, in case you think, oh, actually, I'll show you a cultural revolution experiment. Um, sorry, I did that already. Um, in case you think this is just something I'm manufacturing in my strange own little world, uh, some of you will be familiar with the general social survey. Um, sort of the major social science survey taken um, every year, every couple of years, it varies depending upon the funding, from 1972 to the present. So this is, <coughs> excuse me, almost 30 years of the general social survey. You know, um, I think it's about 30 or 40,000 people in here. Uh, nobody's allowed to drop out. Anybody with scores on any aspect of the dependent variable is kept in the analysis. So it's not as if we end up explaining the behavior of a very small subgroup of the population. This is basically everybody the GSS interviewed from 1972 to 2000. This is all kinds of intolerance of difference. So this is a, an overall measure. Racial intolerance, political intolerance, you know, your attitudes towards speech rights, moral intolerance, school, prayer, abortion, gay rights, etc. Punitiveness, death penalty, stricter sentencing for criminals, all of that together in this omnibus measure. General sort of child-rearing values down here. So all that people are saying at this end is they think that children should be obedient and respectful adults. And down this end, all they're saying is they prefer their kids to be imaginative and to think for themselves. This, all right? So instead of the interaction condition now being things that I'm manipulating and playing with, which, you know, people might argue don't have real-world replicas. So this I'm activating in my laboratory experiments things which don't have, you know, sort of real-world analogs. This is the variance in public opinion at the time that the respondent was surveyed. So the GSS is kind enough to, to give us the date on which the respondent is surveyed, to let us know who was surveyed in each week. They often sort of survey from about the beginning of February through until the end of April. So all that this variable that's interacting here is, is how variant was opinion, all kinds of opinion. How variant was the opinion climate among the people interviewed at the same time as you all right. So basically, I'm taking a four-day period around the time that the respondent themselves was interviewed and seeing how variant opinion was at that time. All right. So talking about how diverse the climate of opinion was at that moment the person was giving their responses to these questions. And so this is, again, an exogenous condition, not something that I'm manipulating in the lab, not something that the respondent is sort of manufacturing by their own wild perceptions, this is a real condition in which they found themselves that we're measuring in a way that's not mediated by anyone's perceptions. And you can see again, <coughs> this is the entire range of the dependent variable going from people who are extremely racially tolerant, uh, want people to regulate their own moral behavior, think anybody should be able to say out loud anything that they want to, think the courts are too, too harsh, uh, oppose the death penalty, through to this end, all of the opposite of the above. Basically, again, low-level measure of authoritarian predisposition, and you can uh, dramatically alter the expression of that predisposition just by looking at the climate of opinion in which the person is being interviewed. All right? So you can think of that, and I can show you that from the other angle. 
How much time do I have? Zero. <laughs> um, any interaction can be viewed from either of two angles. Um, all the diagrams I've shown you so far are looking at how the impact of authoritarianism depends upon normative threat. Now I'm changing where I'm putting those variables, putting normative threat down here on the x-axis and putting the predisposition as the interaction condition. So it's exactly the same result, just viewed from a different angle. And you can see, for those of average predisposition to authoritarianism, they're pretty much indifferent to variance in public opinion. Both libertarian and authoritarian respondents respond to high variance in public opinion, but they respond in exactly opposite ways. So basically, libertarians augment their commitment to tolerance, increase their commitment to racial, political, and moral tolerance in conditions where those things seem to be under threat. Authoritarians go to, you know, go manning the barricades, um, basically demanding moral regulation, uh, sort of political repression and the like, uh, in conditions when society seems to be uh, sort of becoming more diverse, more different. You can t uh, put leadership stuff down here as well, uh, accomplishes the same thing. And the point I wanted to make with that last diagram is, if we're not looking at the interaction, basically that's all that we're seeing, which is regardless of time period, variance in public opinion, that basically the level of intolerance is approximately the same. Right? So lots of things seem to be pretty stable from about the 1960s onwards. And the point that I want to make is, sure, the mean level is the same, but this is a very different world than that. Right? So if you're in a situation where people with extreme predispositions are either extremely committed to freedom and difference or extremely committed to oneness and sameness, are activated in these conditions and diverge to protect the things which are their stances, then you have greater variance in public opinion, uh, more conflictual politics, uh, sort of greater, um, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> um, you giving me zero? All right, I have a couple of things to talk about in regard to conservatism and authoritarianism, and if someone will ask me a question, I'll get to it. talk about it. Okay. Thanks, Karen. Um, it should be clear to you that you've gotten just a taste of three very complex and important research projects. Uh, we have a few minutes left, and so I want to give you a chance to <coughs> act or ask questions about some of these big and important issues that are out on the table. Yes. One of the problems is that people talk about conservatism and we all think we're talking about the same thing and in fact there's lots of different things that people mean when they say conservatism. Uh, sometimes when people say conservatism they may mean what I think of as authoritarianism. Other times they mean laissez-faire conservatism as I call it which is you know, commitment to free market, sort of aversion to government intervention in the economy. Other times they mean what I call status quo conservatism, which is a preference for stability over change. And we normally only use this sort of very terrible measure of conservatism where you have people place themselves on this scale where you tend to think of yourself as liberal or conservative, however you understand those terms. So we have really terrible measures of conservatism. But to the extent that all of those things are sort of tangled up together in the conservatism scale, um, <coughs> Whether you look at it in terms of the US, I've also looked at it cross-nationally, so you can get the World Values Survey, uh, taken 1981, 1995, 60 different countries across the world, from Nigeria, Belarus, Chile, to 
France, West Germany, etc., um, regardless of how you, you slice it up, any kind of measure of, uh, have a measure of laissez-faire conservatism, have a measure of status quo conservatism, and a measure of these child-rearing values, a measure of authoritarianism, and, you know, the same kind of omnibus measures that I was talking about before in regard to intolerance of difference, and authoritarianism consistently predicts something between 15 and 30 percent of the variance in general intolerance of difference worldwide, and conservatism, status quo conservatism, consistently predicts about 3 or 4 percent, and laissez-faire conservatism predicts nothing at all. All right, so part of the problem is, is certainly in U.S. social science we tend to tangle all of those things up together, but when you do get the opportunity to measure them differently, the thing that regulates um, intolerance is authoritarianism. Change is implicated in a very small way, but one of the things that um, I'm sort of interested in arguing is that well, for, for a start, when you confuse authoritarianism and laissez-faire conservatism, you create needless skepticism among those who are quite reasonably unwilling to accept that a distaste for government intervention in the economy somehow suggests a distaste for other races. All right? You also, when you confuse authoritarianism with status quo conservatism, you alienate from the cause of freedom and respect for difference those with a simple aversion to change. Now, aversion to change is an aversion to difference over time. Authoritarianism is an aversion to difference across people, across space, if you like, and those are actually two very different things, as you can see from the stable diversity versus changing together experiment. Um, so conservatives are averse to difference over time, not difference across people, and stable diversity in a modern liberal democracy is fine, by the, you know, according to those who have a general aversion to change. Um, these are people who are otherwise in modern liberal democracies, they're the they're the most ardent defenders of the very constitutional order that guarantees everybody's freedom um, and, and guarantees respect for difference. And so by confounding confu uh, sort of conservatism and authoritarianism, you sort of create, push conservatives towards strange kind of political allegiances with people who are intolerant of difference when in fact those can be the citizens within your community who are the most protective of the constitutional order that protects freedom and respect for difference. Um, and so just a little sort of one step on from that is that we tend to assume that authoritarianism is a problem for authoritarian cultures. So we tend to get sort of tangled up, you know, that's monolithic cultures as opposed to authoritarianism as a predisposition. When in fact, um, if you follow this all through to its logical conclusion, authoritarianism is a big problem for modern liberal democracies. Right? So we tend to imagine that modern liberal democracies will all be educated and socialized towards respect for difference, and all of these little pockets of intolerance will, you know, little residual pockets will be, sort of people will drop out of the electorate, new people will be born and socialized, and eventually will have perfect respect for difference. And in fact, authoritarians, because it's an innate personality dimension, pops up with the same frequency in all different kinds of cultures, which means they exist in monolithic cultures and they exist in modern liberal democracies. And no matter how much you educate and socialize them, they're always going to be intolerant of difference. And in fact, the more that you throw difference in their face, the more that you sing the praises of difference and talk about how different we all are and how wonderful it is that we're all different, the more aggravated they become. All right? So education, sort of multicultural education programs, the free expression of everything, all the things that we um, sort of treasure about democracy and you think are just going to eventually socialize everybody towards perfect tolerance are actually the critical conditions that aggravate people with these predispositions. So all of the things that we most appreciate about, appreciate about liberal democracies are the very things that are going to aggravate and activate intolerance of difference. Whereas authoritarians by predisposition live very comfortably in authoritarian cultures. 
Right? So the ideal culture for someone with an authoritarian predisposition is kind of like an, a benevolent dictatorship uh, where, where difference is suppressed and they're not constantly having uh, sort of you know, diverse opinions and racial diversity thrown in their faces and so on. And one of the um, things that's been interesting to me not being an American citizen is sort of coming to the US which has certainly a self-image which it projects worldwide of being like the home of, of democracy and freedom and respect for difference has this strange combination of great respect for difference and great intolerance. Uh, there's many other countries in the world who I mean, it, it would never even get on the public policy agenda, death penalty, um, restrictions on abortion, required school prayer. And those things, if not sort of in the mainstream, um, well, death penalties certainly, are sort of, you know, reasonable things that, that have their place in the U.S. political sort of um, ambit. Um, I forgot what my point was going to be. What do you think my point was going to be? <laughs> you you like your point, about it, then there's a book that came out in 1939 about, uh, it was called It Can't Happen Here. Right. Uh, oh, the notion that, uh, right. that uh, authoritarian regimes could not occur in the United right. States or in the Middle yeah. So the thing that's most aggravating then to someone with that predisposition is exactly this kind of culture that does, by institutions, norms, processes, by everything you have in place, encourage and support the constant expression of difference. And puts people in a position where they're constantly having to take part in democratic processes and being exposed to conflict of opinion. And I don't know if any of you have, have read Hibbing and T. Smalls' book, Stealth Democracy, makes a very similar kind of argument, is um, basically that Americans actually are many, a large chunk of the US electorate is extremely uncomfortable with how much democracy they have to live with in this country. And you know, it is precisely this kind of culture that is most difficult for authoritarians to live in. So you get the best behavior out of them if they're living in you know, Tito's Yugoslavia, and you get the worst behavior out of them uh, once they're living in, in, in a, an environment in which freedom and difference are constantly in their ambit. Sir. Yes, uh, I have a question for Ms. Uh, uh, Valerie Hunt. Uh, Valerie, um, when I was listening to you talking about, uh, I'm going to lump it to say freedoms or registrations versus preserving the basic freedoms that we I kept thinking that T was really dependent upon where you asked that, those questions. For instance, I think California shocked all of us when the next thing you know, they gave us a you know, rights or welfare benefits taken to a lot of people, taking care of the immigrants and stuff like that. Uh, same thing happens to in Florida. Uh, there's tremendous resentment against Cubans, even though one would argue that the reason that South Florida is as prosperous today is because of Cuba. So I guess the, you certainly took the shock of September 11, but on your time series analyses that you were putting in there, it also seems to be one of economics especially of where you ask that. But if, you, if you're in Nebraska with tons of land, bringing in a couple thousand immigrants is like, wow, this is great. You know, the economy. You do it in South Florida, you do it in uh, California, and the reaction is just really awesome. So I was curious about comments. I would agree with you wholeheartedly. As a matter of fact, with my... Um, 
I'm not. I'm new to this experience of having handlers, but uh, with my handlers last night, uh, the liaisons for this uh, this panel, we had a chat about how co regional context matters, and that uh, the notion of the perception of the percentage of the of foreign-born in the United States has a lot to do about one's understanding of um, whether one should share certain liberties and rights however one defines it, so that if one is in the interior and has a, a mediated perception of the percentage of foreign-born, meaning you see it on CNN or Fox or whatever your pre preference, then it's very different from being on the coast from Seattle down and from how far, let's say Newfoundland time down. Um, and so it really does matter, the particular context, and one of the real-world considerations about that is um, the real um, percentage of uh, uh, foreign, U.S. foreign-born and then the perception of the real percentage of U.S. foreign-born. And so the next step on my project, I'm really excited about being able to look at some regional surveys, which will allow me um, to examine, let's say, for example, the interest of, um, well, public's the public's attitudes regarding who should be detained and why. And so looking in California, which has a history and legacy of detention of Japanese nationals and Japanese American citizens, and so and as well as in Washington because uh, the Harabayashi case and several others um, were the, the location where people have a generational understanding of this. And so I'd I, that is the next step, to be able to do some regional surveys. Okay. Yes. Yes. So, I hear two questions. Could you give me the two questions? Because I hear uh, the, the the context in terms of a perception around uh, legal status is important, and then there's another element. Been exploited, but, okay. I'm going to handle my own slide right now. Show this to Should there be 
detention of individuals who are of legal immigrant status. It's still, there's, the public still strongly favors that. And when I looked at in terms of illegal migration, it was similar. And it, it's just a matter of the particular liberty or right that we wanted to withhold. In terms of detention, it didn't matter. But when it comes to surveillance, profiling individuals, those things matter. And I didn't bring a whole bunch of slides because I didn't want to blind you with science, but it does matter, indeed. Now, you have the other part of the question. Uh, about the political exploitation of uh, those regional differences on immigration, I'm going to tell a little story about it. Um, I get allergy shots down in uh, Green Valley, Arizona, and so anyone familiar with that, there's a bullpen while you wait for your shot, and then the 20 minutes while you're done with the shot, there's a lot of conversation that occurs. One day, a woman from California who had moved to Arizona was talking uh, in really heated terms about all these immigrants who were coming into Arizona and spoiling the place just the way they had California. My response was, well, yeah, that is true. There are a lot of immigrants coming into northern Sonora because, after all, Green Valley is northern Sonora. Uh, it was sold to the United States, but uh, it is northern Sonora, and there are all these people from Minnesota and Michigan and California coming in, and it really is upsetting the normal way of life down here. <laughs> uh, but the point is that there's a moral order. People have different kinds of moral orders that politicians can respond to for beneficial purposes. And indeed, there are politicians in Arizona now who are exploiting the white uh, the, uh, Anglo-Saxons who have moved in uh, with the fear of all these Mexicans who are coming across the border. So, um, sure, we all operate with moral orders the way it's supposed to be, and politicians see advantage uh, in that. And politicians share the same moral orders. It's not just their own political advantage that will come from it. They're concerned about all these people moving in. I'd like, may I, I only want, only because of uh, right of privilege to be able to do this. I won't have it long. But there is a moral consequence to, un, a moral perspective to unintended consequences. And I want to speak about the movement of illegal uh, migration as a result of certain policy preferences. When we set up Operation Gatekeeper in 1994, which was to divert uh, illegal migration either into the sea, but it actually diverted it into Arizona. But what it, well, the consequence of that was deaths at the border, that you have untold, well, we know about 2,000 people who have died crossing through the desert to get to Sonora and other places. So the moral dimension is um, if we consider that unauthorized, unauthorized migration is um, a consequence of people's illegal acts, and therefore they're responsible for their own activity, even unto death, that allows us not to pay attention to the notion that even though you may not have the right to enter, enter you do have the right to stay alive. And, and We're going to have to clear the room because the next course of the banquet is going to begin here in just a few minutes. But I'll ask the panelists to hang around by the coffee for a few minutes in case any of you want to come up and ask additional questions or give them their reactions. But just please join me in thanking the panelists, and thank you for coming.